the reason to live here. This country is turning into the private estate of 20 families. Look at its fattened political arm at the thick neck of its bloated bureaucracy. These are the officers of Samaria. There's no need to consult the oracle. What the capitalist swine leaves behind, the nationalist hyena shreds with its teeth. When the governor of the Bank of Israel raises the interest rate by half a percent, the rich are provided with backyard pools by the poor. The soldier at the outpost protects the usurers who put a lien on his home when he's laid off from the privatized factory and falls behind on his mortgage payments. The pure words I suckled from my mother's breasts, man, child, justice, mercy, and so on, are dispossessed before our eyes, imprisoned in ghettos, murdered at checkpoints, and yet there's still good reason to stay on and live here, to hide the surviving words in the kitchen, in the basement, or the bathroom. The prophet Melampus saved twin orphan snakes from the hands of his slaves. They slithered towards his bed while he slept, then licked the oracles of his ears. When he woke with a fright, he found he could follow the speech of birds. So Hebrew delivered will lick the walls of our hearts. The place itself or I hope you can't digest it. And so I come to the place itself, but the place is not its dust and stones and open space. For where are the red-tailed birds and the almonds green? Where are the bleeding lambs and pomegranates of evening, the smell of bread and the grouse? Where are the windows in the ease of a mirror's braid set free? Where are the quills and white-footed fetid horses whinnying their right foot alone set free? Where are the wedding parties of swallows, the rites and feasts of the olives, the joys of the branching spikes of wheat, and where is the crocus's eyelash? Where are the fields of wheat we played in? We played our high games of hide and seek in. And where is Kasim? Where are the hyssop and thyme? Where is the kite descending on chicks from the heaven's heights as the old woman shouted it? You took our speckled hands, you whore. I hope you can't digest it. You there in the distance, I hope you can't digest it. So what you've just heard um, were poems that Peter translated, one from the Hebrew and one from the Arabic, um, by these two men, um, um, both of whom were Israeli citizens when the poems in question were written. Um, they are members of the same generation. They were born within miles of each other, a short drive, um, if you will, um, and yet, um, given all of that, um, the lives that they lived and the poetry that they wrote, for all of that, they might have as well have come from 
two separate planets. Um, and as it happens, this photograph was taken in Vermont, um, but we can explain that later if you're curious. Um, Peter, as you've just heard, is a poet and a translator. I am a prose writer, an essayist, and a biographer um, of, among others, one of the people in this photograph. Um, and we've both been involved for many years now with the Middle East, both in a daily way, we've lived in Jerusalem for many years, um, and in a literary way. Um, and we've been nourished in a really deep sense by much of the literature, the Hebrew and the Arabic literature, um, that has come out of that context. Um, but we're often struck by the fact that much of what it is that has nourished us in this way, in this very deep way, um, and that has given us pleasure is somehow at odds with or actually just left out of the story of um, the Middle East as it's often offered up for export. And so what we'd like to do tonight is to bring you into that other world, um, specifically the worlds of these two people um, who are, to our minds, uh, two of the most powerful poets uh, to have written in recent years in, call it what you will, Israel, Palestine, um, in many ways also two of the most powerful poets to have been writing anywhere. Um, on your left, um, we Weighing have... Weighing in at about 215 pounds. Uh, <laughs> uh, we have the uh, Hebrew language Israeli Jewish poet Haron Shabtai. And on the right, with the wonderful hands, is Taha Muhammad Ali. Um, they are, or I actually should say were, Taha actually died two years ago to this week. Um, but they still are and remain in their poems, and Chaptai should live a good long life, he's still with us. Um, they are radical writers um, in the sense that their work goes to the root of um, the way or ways in which that place, and again, call it what you will, Israel or Palestine, um, is imagined and conceived, and that's really our subject tonight. Okay, so we'll start with uh, our own Chaptai and we call our presentation the geographies of the imagination. As Adina said, we're interested in the ways in which um, writers are mapping places and which places are really deeply informing the, the work of writers. So this is Aaron Shabtai. He was born in 1939, uh, grew up in Tel Aviv, and then as an adolescent was raised on a kibbutz in the north of Israel. Um, here you see kind of a kibbutz um, mentality, the kibbutz idealized. workers, totally idealized. Um, Shabtai, then he had this kind of epiphany and he decided that at the age of whatever it was, uh, 19, that he wanted to get as far away from Israel as possible. And in his imagination, the thing furthest from the Israeli mentality was the Hellenic mentality, was ancient Greece. And so he went to university to study uh, ancient Greek and uh, did his graduate degree in ancient Greek and he became, in time, uh, arguably the most powerful Hebrew poet of his generation and also the foremost translator of Greek drama. He has, he's now, how old is it, 39? 70-something. Um, has translated the entire body of Greek tragedy and comedy and much of the lyric poetry into Hebrew. Every high school student in Israel who goes through the curriculum, when they read the Greek uh, dramas, they're reading his translation. So he's got um, that inside him, and it's come to inform his poetry, really, in a deeply um, central way. So Shabtai is um, one of, in addition to being just sort of one of the most powerful intellects I've ever met, he is one of the most protean, to use the Greek mythological term, uh, the most protean poets 
artist I've ever met. He's somebody who rewires his artistic system every couple of years, um, not just because, not just to make it new, not just for the shock of novelty, in fact, not for that at all, but in accordance, in response to the demands of the changing subject matter or ethical situation with which he's confronted. And, you know, we all pay a certain kind of lip service to that kind of thing, but very few of us actually make our work respond and change in a fundamental, in that sort of root, radical way, uh, in the way that Shabtai does. It takes a great deal of courage, and there's something also very inspiring about it. So, for example, he began uh, with his kibbutz mentality, uh, sort of combining the Greek valuation of things in themselves, sort of things of the earth, um, things, here we have a kibbutz baker, the sort of the value is a kind of Hellenic thing, Asip Mandelstam writes about this also, of things in themselves, uh, and combining that with the old Israeli ethos of simplicity, uh, not exactly poverty, but uh, economy of means, let's say. Here we see the kibbutz um, dining room. Um, and that kind of culminated in his, the first book that brought him some attention was a book named Kibbutz, um, right? Kibbutz is a communal community. Everybody knows what Kibbutz is. Um, and I just want to read you a short passage oh, wait, uh, about from, picture. from that book. So this is a Kibbutz classroom, okay? And this section of the poem Kibbutz is called Education. And again, this is a book-length poem. He has one of these, he has a kind of epic Greek imagination. Everything he does, he just sort of takes out and does to the hill. I'll read you just a couple of pages. Education. Education needs to encourage feeling. In a notebook, one should read and write of love, but not ignore sloth and negative feelings. One has to study every fact with the detachment that really exists. A number's marvelous. In numbers, there's great possibility. A marvelous compass, a compass of wood and a smaller compass of tin. The blackboard's a marvel, a smooth and square, a black slate, a green slate, marvelous chalk, marvelous writing utensils, a pencil, a pen. Electricity inside the classroom is turned on only in winter. Water's outside. Only the lab has water inside it. In first grade, one learns to write. Writing in pencil, one learns to add. One talks and sings of the seasons, of the different kinds of rain. For the first time, in an active way, a person encounters a book. One learns to spell the names of certain important pieces of furniture. A desk, a chair, the spelling of pronouns of certain positions. One learns how to use the Hebrew vowels. One learns division. There's a risk involved in spelling. Aggression inside the word vetch. Fear in the words division. Arab. So, from um, this sort of minimalist, objectivist uh, aesthetic that Shabtai um, took up in kibbutz, he wrote in that mode for quite a while. He wrote a book called The Domestic Poem, and then he went through the first of his kind of radical protean um, transformations, uh, and that involved this man, uh, Menachem Begin, um, who came to power 
uh, in the late 70s in Israel, and uh, Shabtai wrote a poem about him in the 1980s, and Ladina will tell you. Uh, it's, well, there's a whole saga involved with Menachem Begin, but Begin, basically, until 1977, the Israeli government and establishment was basically controlled by the socialist left, and yet before the state even existed. And so Begin represents something else entirely. He was the head of the main right-wing party, and before the state existed, he was actually a terrorist, a wanted terrorist. He was part of the, he was the head of the Jewish terrorist underground, and and he represented a kind of militant Jewish nationalism, a kind of, uh, they believed in, you know, Jewish not only self-definition, but a kind of defiant, um, in-your-face sense that we will, we will, in the wake of the Holocaust especially, define our own fate. And so this is the person on whom this man, this person who had grown up on a totally leftist kibbutz, decided to um, right. sort of and, and in Israel, culture. pretty much as in America, the intelligentsia, the artist class, is by and large liberal left wing. Um, Begin was the kind of person that every leftist, every artist in the country basically loved to demonize. And then, but for Shabtai, he, and again, Shabtai always going to the root of things, sort of seeing something that other people would pass over. And also enjoying annoying a lot of people. Right, he's a provocateur uh, par excellence. <laughs> Let's see, he lives to annoy and to get people's goat. Um, he basically thought that Begin had something that human, something central to being human, that the left, for all of its noble ideals, ideals that Shabtai himself had shared all these years, had lost, which was a kind of warmth, a kind of paternal affection, a sense of the body politic, a sense of the communal um, spirit and of people being involved and connected to one another and not just to ideas. But the idea of this is essentially, if you can imagine a poet, a sort of liberal American poet picture, you know, Robert Haas or someone like that deciding to write a poem called Reagan. In 1980, right? After Robert Haas writes the book Praise, his next book is called Reagan, right? That's pretty much what happened with that. But it was even wilder. The, the gesture was even more radical than that because he didn't just write this pain or this ode to Menachem Begin. He based it on the kind of grassroots or sort of root nature of Jewish spiritual values. And what he did was, here we have a page of the Talmud. So the Talmud is basically a book of commentary on Jewish law. And you can see the sentinel will show you with the red dot, right? That central column is a is sort of the central text, although it starts out, it just consists of commentary on a couple of words placed in different points in that central column. So the central column itself is commentary on a book of laws. And then all around it on the page are other commentaries spinning off and proliferating from that. Okay, That's the sort of religious ideal. Shabtai, as a totally secular being, still a secular being, even as he's you doing this kind of, right? Yes, he's a big uh, pork uh, chop uh, devotee. Um, he took a page of Menachem Begin's autobiography, which was called Revolt, or The Revolt, and he treated it as if it was scripture, holy scripture. And he deconstructed it, just like the rabbis deconstruct various books of law. I don't know if you can see it. Anyway, it looks um, like that. Yeah, it basically looks like that. And he writes the, the wildest, maybe the wildest poem in Hebrew uh, up until that time ever written, in that he makes two equations. The first is he takes a page where Begin's uh, Jewish underground terrorists 
break into the British munitions depot. The British were c controlling powers in Palestine, and they break in and they steal all of their, as many of their weapons as they can. And he compares this to on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest in the temple going into the Holy of Holies to do the thing that only the high priest, the prayer that only the high priest can say in this, you know, forbidden place. Stealing weapons, right, to do, commit terrorist acts, he makes this comparison. And the second thing he does is he uh, traces the birth of, his, of Begin's son, um, in, Begin is already a wanted terrorist, so he's in hiding, he's underground, he has a false name. And Begin's wife is pregnant and she goes to the hospital to give birth. She has to give birth under a, an assumed name. She gives birth to a son. And so it's, he compares this to the birth of Moses in the bulrushes, right? The son of this underground terrorist. And then the entire second half of the book is a detailed description of Begin's wife breastfeeding. Right? So, and from this, he makes a powerful, epic poem that turns sort of the Israeli readership just on its ear. All right? So you give a sense of sort of the fulcral um, quality of his imagination. Right, but you ain't heard nothing yet. You ain't heard nothing yet. Right. That's, just, that's just for the eggheads in the audience. Okay, here we go. For the rest of you who are getting a little antsy, <laughs> we have this. Um, Shabtai's next move was to go back to, let's say, the uh, erotic bordier side of his Greek roots. And it's as if, you know, he'd been a kind of conceptual poet for the first, till he was, I don't know, 45 or 50. And at a certain point, it's as if the sort of return of a repressed love or the repressed erotic dimension of himself, he's, you know, sort of this big guy, um, just came back and overtook him. And memory of an old love, we don't know this in the course of the poem, but I'll just tell you, it happens to be his sister-in-law that he was in love with. Um, comes back to him and he writes this book-length poem called Love, which just, you know, is this kind of novel of basically unacted upon uh, erotic desire, but it starts like this. I am a man who murdered love simply with his own two hands, took and snapped its neck like a lamb. And then with his fee, his slaughterer's fee, promptly turned into a groiser hachem, a wise ass, wise at night and wise on his ass. And so there's Cain and there's Abel and Joseph and Deborah and Hamor the Shechemite and finally a kind of Aharon Eichmann wandering around with stuck in his back pocket all five scrolls, Lamentations and Ruth, the Song of Songs and so forth, but waiting for the firing squad it's sublime. My eyes blinded by tears to take the ringing bullets like the five stars of the bear. I pronounce life in act of suicide. The New Testament means die and die. I can't be more specific. There's no one, truly no one, to whom I'd explain the specifics. And whoever there is to lend an ear and listen anyway turns to nothing. I'm sobbing over a neck so white, it's unbelievable, unbelievable. I swear a neck as white as this one has never existed. I told her, D, even if they cut off your legs, I called them chips, I'd love you. In fact, it was a vow. You know how far I'd go with her? Even into apostasy, even into the PLO, I'd so I told her plain 
and simple. And all night, every night, kiss you, and I'm entirely capable, I mean it in all such seriousness, of carrying out just such a total kiss. I'm a man who gradually has learned the arts of love. I never once betrayed my wife. Before the marriage, I went two or three times to whores, and that's it. Afterwards, year after year, patiently, I've learned patience. I'm able, how should I put it, to care for, to care for any creature requiring care, i.e., I take into account when I stare at my beloved, the infant, the elder, the entire design. And the ill which follows from the healthy, and the foul, and the exhausting, and the recurrent, which is to say, the law. So instead of saying, D, look, Here's the mezuzah, bore the all through my ear, kept to the fence year after year, I've barked and barked at your beauty. I remember a poem by Alkman on Estamaloisa. Estamaloisa won't answer me, uden umebatai, but she holds a garland. She's like a bright star cut out of the sky, and he adds, like a golden bough, etc. What a wonderful poet. You, Esther Meloisa. My heart's broken with my saying entirely despite myself that your nipples are like thorns. Why would nipples of thorns suddenly shatter a grown man's life? And why didn't you listen when I said, D, come with me? Leave your husband for me, a man who from a mop can trick 200 golden proverbs. Half the night I can't fall asleep from desire. My balls are sore, but I won't beat off. Thinking of Ixion, whom Zeus forgave and took up into the sky where he fell in love with Hera, was deceived and inseminated the goddess. It was only a cloud, and in the end, he was bound to a wheel for all eternity, like me, bound to the wheel of thinking, bound to your name. And as I say, that's just the very beginning of that poem. It goes on for about 100 pages. Just two more snippets from it so you can get a sense of the way he shifts directions in it. Number 20, I'm a love poet who said to his beloved, Honey, you stay in bed and I'll go get some eggs. Except that my going has lasted 20 years. 20 years I've been out getting eggs, though I did believe the act most appropriate for a love poet to say to his beloved, honey, you stay in bed and I'll go get some eggs. 21. This love, this addiction to eggs has cost me this. I can't stand them any longer. I want diamonds, diamonds, diamonds big as ostrich eggs, though as I say it, I'm talking again about eggs, ah, because I know only about eggs. Know, in fact, only how to hate. So, a sense of where uh, one of the sort of radical moves that he makes. Um, after this, he, you can, D in this poem, right, becomes this kind of muse-like figure. This was his sister-in-law, it turns out. Um, all through Shabtai's career, I haven't really mentioned this, but basically there's always been a kind of very powerful woman in his life, a muse-like figure um, that he channeled in many ways. And um, 
After he wrote this poem, Love, uh, as you can imagine, the next book was called Divorce. <laughs> and then he got a new girlfriend. The girlfriend was named Ziva, a Hebrew name. And then his next book was called Meta Zivaka. Right? He began playing on these sort of adopting John Donne sort of metaphysical poetry. And he followed out and he wrote essentially the kind of dirtiest, bawdiest, in-your-face, pornographic, erotic poetry probably ever written in the history of Hebrew. And what's wilder about it is that by now I said Shabtai was the most prominent poet in Israel. His poems were published in basically the book, re the, the equivalent of the New York Times book review on or the weekends. Like the op -ed page. Or the op-ed page. In other words, it was given the most prominent platform in the country, and he was, so the editor, the literary editor was publishing these, you know, kind of very smutty poems designed to get under the skin of the bourgeois, fairly conventional readership, who responded in kind by sending, you know, massive doses of letters to the editor saying, you know, get this guy out of the paper, this is a disgrace, etc. Exactly what Shabtai wants. So in a certain sense, recalibrating um, the sort of expectations of what poetry could be. The next woman who came into his life brought in like a whole nother, um, you know, a whole nother Greek drama. She happened to be a student of Noam Chomsky's. She was a world-class, she died oh, a couple of years ago also, uh, she was a world-class linguist, um, he referred to her as the Aphrodite of the left. Right. Yeah. A world-class linguist and had the same politics as Noam Chomsky. And so Shabtai, the kind of dirty uh, love poet, um, suddenly got politics in a big way. This was also the late 90s. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu, now prime minister, but he was then prime minister for the first time, um, uh, was in office. The uh, second intifada was about to break out. Things there was a great deal of political tension in Israel, and Shabtai felt that ethically he could no longer write this way, and uh, something else was called for. And again, completely rewired his poetic system. And Risk took on what he called a kind of Risk, a kind of poetic suicide. And he began to write direct political poetry, precisely in the way that almost all poets, certainly in America, would say one should never ever do. Right? One should save that kind of stuff for you know. Uh, uh, a soapbox or something like that. But he went right for the political jugular and began writing extremely sort of also provocative poems. And these two were um, published on the, uh, where are we here with this? Well, we could show them the picture and uh, someone else translated it. Yes. Evan, want to read that for the audience? <laughs> we have to put you on the spot. Right. This is a very, this is on a, a fence where you can see Palestinians are waiting to cross in through a checkpoint. But this word, this phrase, death to the Arabs, was a very popular chant at soccer games in Jerusalem. Totally common. It's like, you know, let's go Mets. They would say death to the Arabs. And in our neighborhood, it was on many, many of the walls. We would see it all the time. It was just part of the decoration, almost, uh, of, of at least of Jerusalem. Um, Shabbat actually has a poem about this phrase, but we're not going to read that. Um, so what I want to do is end this part of the program. We'll move on to Taha with just a couple of short, uh, uh, really very, very powerful political poems um, by Shabtai. Uh, in Israel, 
The, uh, most people in America think of the Jewish holidays, they think, you know, Christmas or Hanukkah is the equivalent, but actually the biggest holiday of the year, the one that everybody, whether you're secular or religious, no matter what, celebrates is Passover. That's the time everybody's with your family, and you have the Seder, and you read from the book that tells the story of Passover, the Haggadah, and um, traditional Jews before this holiday have to make their kitchen especially kosher, right? Kosher in a kind of extra kosher way. And in poor neighborhoods, they'll see big vats of water, boiling water out in the street, and people will bring their pots and pans into and dip them in these vats. That's how they make them kosher. And then they scrub their kitchen really fine. It's a kind of spring cleaning. So, so he refers to that, and I said, Haggadah is the book that they're going to read from. So it goes like this. This, play, this poem was, again, imagine the New York Times audience, particularly every you know, Jewish reader of the New York Times, all around the country, if, if Passover is on Monday, so on Saturday or Sunday, they get the book review, and this poem is staring them in their face. Instead of scolding your pots and plates, take steel wool to your hearts. You read the Haggadah like swine, which is put before a table would forage about in the bowl for parsley and dumplings. Passover, however, is stronger than you are. Go outside and see. The slaves are rising up. A brave soul is burying its oppressor beneath the sand. Here is your cruel, stupid pharaoh dispatching his troops with their chariots of war. And here is the sea of freedom which swallows them. And the last poem I'll read um, of Shabtai's is, uh, again, in sort of slightly different vein, also appeared in the major paper of record, Haaretz. Um, it appeared in, two, it was called Elections 2001, and it was, again, appeared just so Election Day was Tuesday, disappeared on the fr in the Friday paper. In 2001, the choice, it was sort of like a lot of American elections, maybe not the most recent one, but um, or the last two ones, but the choice between, let's say, the two main parties really wasn't a choice. It was sort of the lesser evil. Liberals would say it was the lesser evil you would vote for, or radicals like Shabtai would say no. It was Ariel Sharon against Ehud, Ehud Barak. Okay. Um, Sharon already have been declared a war criminal by various government commissions and so forth. Radicals like Shabtime, we used to argue about this all the time, we say, no, you, you are ethically obliged to cast a blank ballot in protest, that this is not a choice. And anyway, so he writes a poem about the choice that voters faced in 2001. And remember, in 2001, Israel was still more of a naive democracy in the sense that the voter rate was incredibly high. I think it was, Evan, something like 80% around then. Right now it's already down to sort of American uh, standards. But so this is something, elections are something that people took very, very seriously. Elections, Israel 2001. I'm for PP, long live PP. PP's mission is civilized, cultured, salubrious. PP makes sure the blood flows smoothly cleanly and for good reason. Therefore, thanks to Peepee, -pee, words give off a pleasant scent. Not for nothing do the leading writers and professors express their support for Peepee. -pee. I'm for Kaka. <laughs> Kaka resembles earth that swallows the choice words stuck to the brow of every terminated target. Kaka does what Peepee -pee does, but 
with greater boldness, without hiding behind the professors. The truth, in fact, stinks. But it's beautiful in its solid state. Therefore, I'm for caca. Long live caca. So we'll stop with that and move on to. Okay, now for something completely different, I hope. Okay, oh, that's actually, well, something else. So you can see why this is not poetry for export that Adina mentioned. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the second man in that first photograph. Um, um, was, is, in fact, was Taha Muhammad Ali, um, the subject of this biography that I wrote, um, which was a kind of life and times of Taha in the sense that he was at the center of it, but it was very much a portrait of his world. And I took the title of that book from a poem of Taha's own, which in many ways um, is one of his most incisive. And actually, maybe I'll start right with that. It's called Warning. Lovers of Hunting. And beginners seeking your prey, don't aim your rifles at my happiness, which isn't worth the price of the bullet you'd waste on it. What seems to you so nimble and fine, like a fawn, and flees every which way like a partridge, isn't happiness. Trust me, my happiness bears no relation to happiness. Okay, so that's something to keep in mind. My happiness bears no relation to happiness. As you hear um, very quickly the story of Taha's life, which began in this place, um, a village in the Galilee called Safuria. Um, this is actually a photograph that was taken the summer of Taha's birth in 1931, and it's kind of amazing that that's the fact, because there are very few photographs of the village. Um, it happened that an American archaeological team was digging there, and so they took pictures. This might actually be the month of his birth. Um, this was the most um, thriving village in the district, um, in its district in that time in British Mandatory Palestine. Um, it was an agricultural village. It was a place of great um, sort of in emotional richness um, and agricultural richness. It was also a place of poverty and of um, great illiteracy. Um, and I'm not just telling you about the village because um, it's a part of Taha's life. It's also a central part of his poetry. And this will return in the course of what we're about to tell you. Um, Taha came from an especially poor family. His father actually had polio and couldn't work. So Taha, as the oldest son, ended up really supporting his family from a very early age. He was very enterprising. He lasted about four years in school until he dropped out and realized that as the oldest son, he had to support his own family. And he sort of, he made bargains with the village women. He would buy their eggs and sell them at a slight markup. And then this eventually evolved into a kind of kiosk, which turned into a grocery store. So by the time he was about 14, he was also very um, successful businessman. Um, but Taha had basically envisioned a life for himself in this place. He was engaged to his cousin, and he had it all mapped out. He knew exactly what he would build and where they would live. Um, and that was the plan. Um, that plan came to a crashing um, halt in, on the night, one night in July of 1948, when the Israeli army conquered his village. And everyone, his neighbors and his friends and his family, they were forced to flee just in a matter of just a very short time. They just gathered a few belongings and fled. They thought they would be coming back um, in a few days. They never came back. Um, they, the, Taha's own family, the, the village scattered in all directions. Taha's own family ended up in Lebanon. Um, they were there for about nine months. It was a very, very horrible existence, um, tremendous suffering. Taha continued to support his family during this time. His little sister died of a horrible case of meningitis. And event eventually, they decided they had to come back. But now they had to sneak back. And this is kind of hard to get one's head around, but 
these people had left their homeland, the only place they'd ever known, this village, and they basically came back as illegal immigrants. They were now completely unwanted, undocumented in the village, in the, in the, the country of their own birth. And while they were gone, um, Israel had demolished, the Israeli army had demolished their village. If you go there now, you'll find a Jewish National Fund forest, uh, which is dedicated um, in honor of Guatemalan Independence Day, which um, strikes me as shocking. Um, but anyway, this is what you find now. And this isn't what it looked like when they came back, but it was gone. There was nothing for them to return to. For a period of about a year, they were completely in limbo, in hiding. Taha at one point was arrested and deported. He snuck back in. They eventually managed to become citizens. Um, and again, a very enterprising person and an incredibly positive person. And this is one of the, the miracles of Taha is how he managed to stay so incredibly, I mean, he had great darkness in him, but he managed to stay so somehow joyful in the face of real um, um, horror in a lot of ways. He soon opened up another store in Nazareth. This is Taha as a young man. In his shop, first it was a grocery, eventually it was a souvenir shop in Nazareth, right next, um, right next to the Church of the Annunciation. Um, and Taha, I should say, I said he j had just a few years of schooling. Um, but he had very early on a sense that he wanted something much more. He had a sense of himself as a writer, although at that point he could barely write. Arabic is an incredibly difficult language, classical Arabic. Taha had to basically teach himself. He had to go back to sort of first grade and in his own, I mean, he taught himself. He had to teach himself the entire all of Arabic grammar and the Arabic classical Arabic literary tradition. He taught himself English so that he could both read English and American classics. He loved the writer he called John Steinbeck, um, and also um, European works in English translation, and he was voracious for all this. And he really educated himself with the knowledge that he wanted to become a writer, but that he knew it would take a great deal of time. And he began to write slowly, eventually. He wrote fiction at first, and he began to write poetry. At the same time, his shop was thriving. He was quite a good businessman. This is slightly later. I think this is the 70s. It also became a kind of gathering place for many of the Arabic um, speaking intellectuals of Israel. Um, this is a photograph, kind of amazing picture of Taha as a young man with the mustache with the poet Samich al-Qasim, who is actually a much more famous Palestinian uh, poet than Taha. Mahmoud Darwish and Samich al-Qasim are sort of the Palestinian poets in the mind of most of the Arab world. And this is Samich as a high school student, basically coming to hang out in Taha's shop and show him poems. Um, and. Um, Let's see, um, basically, Taha, I also need to just, well, I'll show you. Taha's shop continued to evolve. Um, this is as it looked until just a few years ago, um, <laughs> the prominent souvenir center of Nazareth. Yeah, he's back there uh, somewhere. He's back there. Oh, no, oh, no, 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 go back here. Wait, sorry, I'm ruining our slideshow. Oh, I'm totally ruining it. Okay. I just hit the wrong button. Okay, there's Taha. <laughs> you got a little flash forward. Um, and as you can see, he loves signs and words. And one of the amazing things about Taha is how he kind of combined his shopkeeper sensibility with his poet sensibility. And so these signs were a wonderful um, example of that. What was the issue before he said what was, what was the old continental airlines? Oh, well, when we first oh, yeah. brought Taha to America, we, we'd never been here until his seven. We, we used to fly continental. They, May rest in slid the little napkin in front of us, you know, for the, the pretzels. And on the napkin it said, work hard, fly right. Right? Yeah. So, you know, we've all had that many times flashed in front of us. Taha looks at it and he hits me and he says to me in Arabic, 
what do you think this means? <laughs> <laughs> and he's talking and thinking, what, what are the possible meanings of it? Every sort of bit of, you know, because the strangeness of English for him, every bit of signage kind of he absorbed and would take back well, to the Well, so in fact, well, I've now just ruined it by showing you the punchlines, but basically he had the, uh, this incredible combination of sort of Palestinian peasant wisdom with what I think we'd think of as sort of, you know, like the wisdom of Groucho Marx or the Lower East Side. So he'd have, for instance, these signs in his shop, Nicer than you imagined, <laughs> cheaper than you expected. Um, <laughs> but along with that, he actually also had, we don't have a picture of that here, but he had a sign on the wall, and I think it's the only Middle Eastern chachka shop we've ever seen that has the words of John Keats on the wall that said, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. Um, <laughs> So anyway, for all of that though, Taha was um, throughout this time writing poetry. And his poetry was very, when it kind of, when it came into being, and it was quite late, Taha only began to write poems in his 40s. His first book of poems only came out when he was in his 50s. It kind of burst out in full bloom. Um, and it was an incredible thing. He had a way of smuggling under this very simple seeming surface incredible complexity and sophistication. And so some of the peasantry of his, I wouldn't call it an act, but he liked to act the peasant sort of for fun, to, the, the joker, to sort of, I think, catch people off guard and then smuggle all kinds of much more complicated things under the surface. And part of that complexity had to do with a notion of politics. Um, there's a question of sort of what is political poetry, and some people might view Taha as a not-so-political Palestinian poet, which is ridiculous, um, I think, to our minds. He's a deeply political poet, but not in the sense of a political poet who's sort of aiming for the highest balcony with a kind of soapbox or, or you know, um, the speech of the slogan or the, the platform. This was very much a politics, a poetry of politics that returned the word politics to its original meaning, which comes from the Greek politikos of a citizen. And this is, again, back to Taha's village. This, his poems are deeply populated. They're full of the people of his village. These people who he grew up with, their dialect, the foods that they ate, this particular way that they had of being with each other. Um, and that, too, is politics in this very deep and essential way of a citizen. Um, and I don't well, know you just say. say that, in a certain sense, what Adina just said is kind of, you know, dissing Shabtai's way of writing this direct political poetry. And this actually would come up at times when we read together. Um, but it's important to keep in mind here that each of these poets was writing into a particular tradition and a particular audience expectation. In Arabic, there was a highly developed tradition of public poetry, poets holding forth almost since the Middle Ages directly on political topics. Right? The and poet the, is basically a public as figure. As a kind of spokesperson, yeah, for the tribe. It goes back to the beginnings of Arabic poetry in pre, the pre-Islamic times. Um, so Taha, in a sense, was trying to subvert all that and work through a poetics of indirection. He would often talk about poetry as a kind of billiards. He would say, you aim over there to get over there. Right? And that, that's sort of the art of poetry. Shabtai, on the other hand, was writing into very much a kind of Hebrew essentially European lyrical tradition where direct political statement was frowned upon and not really employed very often. And so to get people's attention, to provoke them, he would upend their expectations. So late in life, um, after having published several books in Arabic, Taha actually came into his own on the international stage. He became something of a kind of international um, poetic 
celebrity. Um, here you have, oh wait, that was Taha. Well, you can see Taha's incredible, um, this, this presence of his, this incredible exuberance. But here I want to show you this picture, which is Peter and Taha together at the Dodge Poetry Festival, reading in front of this huge crowd. And you can see the incredible delight they're both taking. Right. It's this, not is actually, this is actually literary translation as an Olympic sport, essentially synchronized swimming. Uh, <laughs> um, right, OK. So, um, and I guess I would say, for us, one of the most amazing things, and Taha's book, we should show them while well, you've been holding it, but Taha's book came out in English, so what? Copper Canyon Press published this in bilingual edition. Taha was incredibly pleased. He'd suddenly had a kind of place um, in the world at large. There's a way in which Palestinian poets writing in Israel especially are really deeply marginalized. They don't quite have a place in the Arab world because it's Israel, and the poems are published almost in a self-published way. So this was like a beautiful volume, this wonderful publisher in America, and he had all these people who were absolutely fascinated by him. And for us, aside from the fact that a lot of Arabs were really just delighted to have discovered the Arabic versions of his poems, what was so moving was seeing the way Taha's poems, which come from this village, from this incredibly local, the most provincial, if you will, place, the most specific place, were able to somehow reach out across the world in translation and speak to people who couldn't care less about the Middle East at some level. They don't know about Palestine and Israel. I mean, if they do, that's good too. It's not as if you can't care about it, but you don't have to. And so, for instance, at a place like Dodge, it was remarkable to see these thousands of people, and Taha himself was quite um, amazed. He kept asking me to take photographs of the crowd so he could show the people back in Nazareth so they would believe that he had been in this context in which all these people were listening to him. But to see these people responding to his poems about Sepharia, his village, in a colonial village in New Jersey. So, so this is a poem called Abdel Hadi Fights a Superpower. Um, two things you would help to know. Abdel Hadi is a character who shows up in a lot of Taha's poems. Taha's poems, he's a kind of Arab everyman, could be anywhere in the Arab world. Um, and there's a word that will be helpful to know, labna, some of you might know, is a cheese that's made from yogurt. In his life, he neither wrote nor read. In his life, he didn't cut down a single tree didn't speak, didn't slit the throat of a single calf. In his life, he did not speak of the New York Times behind its back, didn't raise his voice to a soul except in his saying, come in, please, by God, you can't refuse. Nevertheless, his case is hopeless, his situation desperate. His God-given rights are a grain of salt tossed into the sea. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, about his enemies, my client knows not a thing. And I can assure you, were he to encounter the entire crew of the aircraft carrier Enterprise, he'd serve them eggs, sunny side up, and labna fresh from the bag. And one, this is from Twigs. Where did that one go? 117. And so it has taken me all of 60 years to understand that water is the finest drink 
and bread the most delicious food, and that art is worthless unless it plants a measure of splendor in people's hearts. Um, so just another word about the village, um, which keeps coming back. And I should say, even when the village isn't mentioned, it's there. It's underneath all of these poems. I think the deep ethos and sort of the, the, the world that Taha is conveying in every word is, holds the village in it. Um, he was often asked, you know, the, there's a lot of talk, um, if you follow the sort of news stories about Palestine and Israel, about the right of return, the refugees, do these people want to come back? And so Taha was asked at one point, he was often asked, but in a particular documentary film, the filmmaker asked him, so Taha, what will you do when you go back to your village? And he said, who said I want to go back? Um, for Taha, it's, it was very clear that the village as a piece of property, as a piece of land to be struggled over or argued over in political negotiation, that was not what the place was about. And Peter read at the very beginning tonight the place itself, which is of course Taha's poem, not Shabtai's poem, we didn't tell you whose was whose, but I think you could probably guess by now. Um, it was not this empty place. It was a place of specific people and specific animals and specific memories. And to him, the place kind of um, denuded of all of that was not the place at all. Um, and so maybe you'll, oh, actually, I should show you. I'm not doing very well with the PowerPoint tonight. Um, I wanted to show you just a few pictures. And again, there are very few pictures of Taha's village that exist, so it's amazing that these do. This is the village as this living place. These are the threshing floors of Taha's village in about 1940, when he was about nine years old. These are Which the, the looks girls. Like it looks, yeah, I mean, this could really be, in fact, one of the amazing things for us when we came to the Dodge Poetry Festival with Taha, it's a colonial village, you know, col American colonial village with the with the, the grinding stones and all of the kind of apparatus of 18th century American life. And we arranged, uh, I think it was just the very last day we were there to get a little tour on the golf cart with Taha around the village. He was in heaven. He was so thrilled to see these things from his childhood, <laughs> 18th century America. It was 1940 Palestine. Um, these are the girls with the water jugs on their head. Um, and again, this picture of the place uh, itself, um, which is and is not the place itself. So this is a poem of the place as Taha managed to reconjure it on the page. And this is uh, for Annie, who is goat herding. <laughs> the kid goats of Jamil. Jamil, my father's cousin, our neighbor in Safaria, married three wives, but had for them neither a son to inherit his name nor a daughter to refresh his heart. Jamil, my father's cousin, our neighbor in Safaria, owned a wide-eyed, long-haired, blonde Damascene she-goat that gave birth to six woolly kid goats two days after he returned from Mecca. Their silken breath reminded you of the childhood of the world. Jamil's kid goats are creatures of another world. Jamil and his three wives, kid goats, are six doe-smooth figures of dawn, six baby stars escaping the nursery of a star-filled sky. Their shadows won't stand still. Stones sleep. Satan sleeps. 
shooting stars and fish sleep. But Jamil's kid goats never tire. The wind rests, but Jamil's kid goats never grow drowsy. They scale the archway, leap over the log pile, scramble up to the roof's edge, and run around in the courtyard, then down the path between the storeroom and the goat shed. Their frisky movements dissolve their goats' gay colors. Their craziness simply goes crazy on evenings when the almonds go green with the return of the harvest moon. The kid goats of Jamil and his wives leap out of the windows of their skin. They sway, pounce, and dance in the silvery fullness of the world like dangling lamps of mercury being tugged at by puppy-sized gin. The newly arrived kid goats filled the hearts of Jamil and his wives with a rare buoyant splendor. They warmed their spirits and spilled soft as velvet into their home, into the goat shed and onto the path, perfuming the storeroom. That pleasure was never limited to the three wives. The gladness was never restricted to the blonde, wide-eyed, long-haired, golden-hearted Damascene she-goat. The happiness was never confined to Jamil, my father's cousin, our neighbor in Safaria, a bright, hopeful joy spread out over the people, over the village, like the joy of the year's first rain. I think we're going to just end with two poems. Should we do both? Okay. So um, the first is a completely different, in a completely different vein from everything you've heard um, so far tonight. And um, it'll give you a sense of Taha's incredible ability to disarm um, and to make room or sort of prepare the heart, as he would say, for darker matters. Um, I think it was important to him not only to be the sort of sad, um, gloomy um, bearer of bad tidings or gloomy tidings, but to give some... A measure of splendor in a people's measure hearts. Of splendor so in people's here's hearts. a different kind of splendor. Michelle. In Marseille, the marvelous woman in whose house I stayed for a week was called Michelle. Her kind husband was named Michelle. And the name of her handsome white dog was Michelle. Even Henri, her servant of many years, whom her mother had stumbled on, aimlessly wandering in the gardens of Aix-en-Provence when he was brought back from Vietnam, she called Michelle. In my memory, I will preserve much of what I observed in the south of France. But I will surely be swept away whenever I remember the day and the sweetness of Michelle's saying upon my leaving, Au revoir, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> and the last one, um, I want to read. Do you want to say anything about this one? Um, yeah, well, I think um, this was actually a poem that was sort of too late breaking to make it into So What. He wrote it um, after this book was already in press. Um, 
And I, actually, we should say, we did publish it as a chapbook um, just recently. And if anyone would like to have it, um, we would be happy to send you a copy. You just have to send for us free. for free, a self-addressed stamped envelope. We can give you the address later. Um, but it's an amazing poem. I won't say anything about the poem itself. But there is a kind of poetic justice involved in this in terms of tonight's presentation in the sense that Peter first heard about this poem from Shabtai, who had heard Taha reading it at a local festival. Right. Aaron Shabtai called me up at one point. He said, I just heard this most amazing poem and in a rough Hebrew translation by Ty. And he already knew Ty. We'd already traveled together quite a bit. And he said, you've got to get this poem and translate it. It's amazing. So, so this will be the final gesture. Yeah. But And thank you all, meanwhile. <laughs> Revenge. At times I wish I could meet in a duel the man who killed my father and raised our home, expelling me into a narrow country. And if he killed me, I'd rest at last, and if I were ready, I would take my revenge. But if it came to light when my rival appeared, that he had a mother waiting for him, or a father who put his right hand over the heart's place in his chest whenever his son was late, even by just a quarter hour for a meeting they'd set, then I would not kill him, even if I could. Likewise, I would not murder him if it were soon made clear that he had a brother or sisters who loved him and constantly longed to see him, or if he had a wife to greet him and children who couldn't bear his absence and whom his gifts would thrill, or if he had friends or companions, neighbors he knew or allies from prison or a hospital room or classmates from his school asking about him and sending him regards. But if he turned out to be on his own, cut off like a branch from a tree, without a mother or father, with neither a brother or sister, wifeless without a child, and without kin or neighbors or friends, colleagues or companions, then I'd add not a thing to his pain within that aloneness, not the torment of death, and not the sorrow of passing away. Instead, I'd be content to ignore him when I passed him by on the street as I convinced myself that paying him no attention in itself was a kind of revenge. Thank you. So we'd be happy to take some questions, Gary, yeah, or uh, a yeah. couple questions, sure. anybody, or anything? Anything. <laughs> Did we make those poems up? Did these people actually exist? Is this all Photoshop? All fiction. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, he came, we did it a couple of that times. That was the second time. Yeah, that, that was the second time, the first time. The first time was 2000 and... Two, maybe? Two. Four, something two. like that? Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what, was that? Question? what was the most Begin's reaction to the Shabtai? That's a good question. I know, was Begin, uh, what, was, what shape he was, was he in in those he was days? Yeah. He was so I have no idea. I'm not no sure idea. if he was such a reader of poetry, Menachem <laughs> Begin. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm sure he was pleased, right? How could he not be? His picture was on the cover. <laughs> so, anything else? Huh? What else? Yeah. I think it's more of a comment, actually, since you refer to these people even exist. Right. <laughs> 
tell these wonderful stories and really draws us in into the material. And I, I was going to ask you know, how you come up with some of these stories. When you hear a great one, do you run to the corner and write it down and say, wait, don't go anywhere? Yeah. Trust me, this is like the tip of the iceberg. There, I mean, traveling with these two guys. We actually we, didn't tell you that we traveled with them together once, which was that first picture that we showed you in Vermont was a photograph taken on that trip, which was a complete magical mystery tour. Of yeah, in fact, just another little quick story. So when we were in Middlebury, the two of these guys, Jay Perini teaches there, and he said to them, hey, you guys want to see Robert Frost's cabin? So we, we go marching out to Robert Frost's cabin, and we're out in this big hill, this Palestinian poet, this Israeli Hebrew poet, and they're looking around, and Taha looks up, and he says, I don't see any fences, and I don't see any neighbors. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. He sort of had the idea that New England and the Middle East were, you know, that metaphor might not work in the Middle East. Uh, Actually, we so, should say, I have to yeah. say, as biographer, because it is this question of sort of also all of these stories, and for many years, I mean, we, well, Peter and Taha were being invited and going, traveling around, and I was just sort of tagging along as, as baggage um, handler. I was not there as biographer. And people kept saying, are you... Are you guys writing this down? I think In Adam, fact, Adam, Adam Zagievsky yes, said, said he actually it was a great moment at the Dodge Poetry Festival in which Taha was <laughs> how much of this should we tell? Taha was absolutely fascinated by the porta potties. Like this they did not have in his village. And he was just amazed. He was admiring the handles and the doors. And so he came, he went to the bathroom and came out and he was admiring the porta potty and Adam Zagievsky was watching this scene. We, we, were, and, well, we were sitting leaning against the fence with Edward Hirsch, Adam Zagievsky, and a bunch of other poets, and Taha's come stepping out very gingerly out of this porta potty, like admiring the handle and look at this. And Adam just turns to us, he says, you guys, you have a camera? You've got to be getting this all down. And but, we thought, oh, no. No, and in fact, know. so we just, both just resisted it, it completely. And I, as the, you know, ostensible, like, sort of, you know, the, the biographer in the family, I, I, people kept saying this, right. and we both said, no, no, no. But at a certain point, the pressure sort of built up to the point, especially with Taha. Although it was also, when I wrote this book, I tried very hard not to make it into a series of charming anecdotes, because it's endless. And most of those, and in fact, are not in the they're book. They're not in the book, yeah. because it actually is too much. And I mean, they are charming, but that's not not really what Taha as a but poet I'll, is about. I'll give you another indication of sort of the sophistication that Adina talked about with, with Taha. Um, at one place we were at, I think, I can't remember if it was with Shabtai also, but it was the, we were speaking to a large group of students in the Midwest, and for like two or three nights in a row, in the middle of the reading, Shabtai, uh, Taha stood up and he said in, in, in English, his English was, was broken but pretty good, he said, Politics is the cancer of Arabic literature, poetry. Uh, of Arabic poetry. Politics is the cancer of Arabic poetry. So the first night I figured, you know, you don't want to repeat yourself when you give readings. You try to change it up a little bit every night. And I figured, oh, he's just entertaining himself. Then he did it again. He did it three times. I've been translating him for a long time. You can see, I, you know, I have these poems deeply in me. If you ask me, his poems are very political. So I had in mind this guy who's a very sophisticated political poet, and here he is standing up and declaring for all the world, politics is a cancer of Arabic poetry. And I'm thinking, the book's already published. Maybe, actually, I'm an Orientalist, right? Maybe I'm a positive Orientalist, and this is my kind of liberal projection of what I want him to be, and I've sort of turned him into this thing, and he's not that, and I have to ask him, I have to confront him and ask him this question directly. And he's not somebody who likes like big abstract intellectual uh, 
conversations. So we thought, okay, let's, we discussed it, how we can we make this concrete? We were having lunch, it was Grinnell, Iowa, outdoors near the train tracks, fall day, sort of like this, and um, we finished our lunch, and I said, ah, I need to ask you a question, yeah. So I pulled out a poem, his most explicitly political poem, a straight political poem about oil in Arab countries. And I read him a couple of lines, and I said, you've been saying every night, politics is the cancer of Arabic poetry. Aren't these lines political? And he was wearing a New York giant ski cap, which he sold at his store. He's got big gold, you know, fillings. And he pulls his cap back, and he makes a big smile, and he says, all my poetry is political. <laughs> right. In other words, he was looking at the students who expected this angry Palestinian poet to come and preach to them about Palestine, and he was not going to play that game. He was going to... Okay, so we got, you know, we have tons and tons of stories like them. We try to remember them. Um, maybe one day we'll write some of this up in, in a different way. But all that stuff actually does contribute, in a way, to the translation of the poetry. I mean, I have, I know the rhythms of his storytelling. I, you know, I know exactly how his mind thinks now. Um, and it contributes also to the biography in the sense of who is this complicated guy and how does he manage to survive uh, with all this tragedy with such sort of exuberance and, and goodwill and buoyancy. Yeah. Is it possible for these two men to read in Palestine Israel? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or is it possible for them to read? Um, they have read together. I mean, Wataha is no longer with us, but at festivals in Israel, Taha actually had a book published in Hebrew, uh, good Hebrew translation, which, uh, and so he's become quite popular also now. I mean, this happened later, even after the English. Um, but he is now recognized also by Hebrew speakers. Shabtai's poetry is not translated into Arabic as popularly, but he's certainly respected by Palestinian intellectuals. Um, so yeah, it's totally possible. That kind of thing is, is really not an issue. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, it, you know, is the glass half empty or is the glass um, half full? I mean, I'm sorry, I don't know. I, I would say that it's uh, half empty in the sense that there's a way in which, I mean, yes, you know, they there are commonalities, obviously, linguistic things, there's overlap, and there is some contact in the context of sort of some of these festivals and things, but the fact is it's a very unbalanced relationship. Um, it's not in our experience, an exchange of real equals. Um, in fact, in my book, I ended up sort of, you know, I was writing about Taha's whole life, and one of the kind of shocking things for me was finding that a lot of the things that we consider so novel about what goes on now have been going on for a really long time, and unfortunately, they've, since the 1950s, there have been attempts to bring Arab and Jewish writers together in Israel, um, really earnest attempts on both sides to bring people together, and almost consistently it's foundered. Often, I mean, this is my, I don't know, there are different ways to answer this question. My feeling is that it's often foundered on this, the arrogance of a lot of the Israeli Jewish um, writers who at some level want in a kind of superficial way to make contact with Arab writers and who feel in a kind of general sense a kind of liberal feeling that we want to live together, but they're not really willing to actually take the extra step and A, learn the literature, um, many more 
um, Arabs, Palestinian Arabs know about Hebrew literature than Israeli Jews know Especially about Arabic literature. Ones, yeah. yeah. Um, so that it's a very unbalanced relationship. And you also, I mean, it's, it's a reflection of the larger culture. I mean, Israeli Jews control that society, and Arabs are a minority. And so uh, there are little pockets of friendship. Um, and, you know, it was wonderful to be with Shabtai and Taha together traveling around America. Um, but, you know, the fact is we actually had, this is sort of a slightly sensational way to answer this, but while we were traveling around with them, somehow somebody told Oprah Winfrey about Taha and Shabtai, and she was doing a show on unusual friendships. And so <laughs> she wanted to put Taha and Shabtai on air. It, didn't, it was the last day we were in yeah. the States. I mean, for various reasons, it didn't work. I mean, Taha's lack of dentures, he, I mean, there would have been reasons why it wouldn't have worked on Oprah, but we also had to sort of break it to this very happy-sounding producer that they aren't actually friends. They're, they like each other a lot, and there's there's a kind they of deep respect. With us. They were friends with us, but friendship. I mean, real friendship. This was not real friendship, and I we mean, we could have sold a lot of books <laughs> under false pretenses. Yeah. But that wasn't. I mean, you know. Look, you want, there, are, there are places where this isn't the case, and there are people who are genuinely trying to do things together, but on the whole, it's not. I mean, are you, yeah. would you agree Well, with that? I would basically agree that, but to be fair, um, we got to Taha yeah. through one of these dialogue groups. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't direct. Uh, there were two other translators who worked with me, a Palestinian who sort of checked my Arabic, Yechi Hijazi, and an American, Gabriel Levin, who also helped. And it was Gabriel Levin who was in one of these dialogue groups. Uh, Taha wasn't in the group, but it was a dialogue group with, uh, with Israeli uh, Jewish and Palestinian, Hebrew and Palestinian writers, or let's say Jewish and Palestinian writers. And somebody told him, about Taha and says, oh, there's this guy in Nazareth, he's really interesting. Uh, he has nothing to do with any of this kind of, you know, ridiculous dialogue groups that we're engaged in. You should go see him. And our friend Gabriel, Gabriel went up there to meet him and came back and said, wow, this guy is from another planet. I mean, he's really, really interesting. Um, so that was, did all come out of that. Um, the, the, yeah, what I do agree with what Dean said, the problem is often is how much work it's not enough to just to have goodwill. I mean, a classic line, sort of one of the, you know, landmark experiences I had in this was a, an Israeli Jewish uh, Hebrew writer uh, who I've known for many, many years said to me one day, he's now probably late 60s, he said, Peter, maybe we have to just admit that Arabic poetry is no good. I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, I've been reading a bunch of these poems in bad Hebrew translations, he didn't say. Uh, he said, they're not good. I can't find any good poems. And I said, well, how bad do you want to find out? And he said, well, I, it's important to me. I said, so if it's so important to you and these translations aren't good, maybe you should learn the language. Oh, but that's time. That's serious time. They say about Arabic that the first 40 years are the hardest. It's a difficult language. Um, but that is, you know, that is a kind of test where as, like Samih Qasim, the Arab poet that we saw in Taha's shop as a high school student, he's totally fluent in Hebrew. He's got, he's got his Hebrew is, you know, much better than our Hebrew. He knows he, the history of Hebrew literature. So... Again, you have minority, it's a power dynamic that's involved. I mean, there are all kinds of, you know, sad, missed opportunities. One of the things, uh, historically also, that's kind of amazing is that at a certain point in the 50s, when Jews began arriving in Israel from Arab 
Arabic-speaking countries, there were a lot of young Arabic intellectuals who happened to be Jews who showed up in Israel and who were Arabic poets. And they actually, there was a real period of interaction in the Communist Party, especially between these young Iraqis, especially, and the local Palestinians. But it sort of fizzled out. At a certain point, the Jews decided that they needed to acculturate and become more Hebrew-speaking Jewish, and they had to distance themselves from their own Arabic background. And so it's not just about literature, about the sort of, it's about the arc of the whole culture. But we should also say, and I see Ruud has a question, but just because it hasn't gone all that well so far, it doesn't mean that it's not an incredibly rich opportunity there. And there really is. The problem is that it's not so simple, you know, in America, we think of, well, we're just writers here in this wonderful situation. We can put politics aside. But it's very hard to put politics aside there. And in know? fact, it shouldn't um, be put aside. It's yeah. part of what people need to reckon with right. as writers. So that, the kind of dialogue you're talking about, would be considered normalization. Normalization is already conceding that the status quo is something we can live with. But for, for a certain kind of Palestinian, no. That status quo is intolerable. We will not cooperate in any kind of normalization. And, you know, that makes us sad, but we respect it also. We understand. So, yeah. Would you have a yeah. question? Yeah. 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 become a diasporic Well, actually, I think maybe here we could return to the very first thing that Peter read, which is the Shabtai poem, The Reason to Live Here. And this is something that he wrote when Haaretz, the main newspaper, the kind of the best newspaper in Israel, had a survey of different writers asking them, what is the reason to live here? Basically, why not go to Europe? Yeah, and I mean, so, for the benefit of everybody else. Yeah. Because Israel's a country with so many problems, one of the national jokes is, last person who to leave the airport, turn out the lights, <laughs> right? So, last person to leave the country, turn out the lights at the airport. Because the idea is that everybody has another passport, if you can, because, you know, things are going to get bad eventually. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there's no answer, obviously, and everyone decides for themselves. And I think the era of people casting serious judgment on those who leave is gone. I mean, I think a lot of Israel, it used to be that if an Israeli Jew left Israel, it was considered the greatest sin. Now people understand, and I think among in Palestinian society, it's the same way. There are a lot of reasons to go elsewhere. It's really hard to live. But that Shabtai poem, I think, in a way, this notion of, of hiding the, what, I don't want to paraphrase the poem about the... the uh, he says words. there's still reasons to stay here basically to save the language from corruption. Yeah. Right? It's true the country's falling apart. It's true, you know, all kinds of horrible things are happening, but we still have this language, and we as the writers, right, or Shabtai as writer, his job is to take these important words, hide it in the basement. you know, child, justice, right, the things he got from his mother, hide them in the basement and protect them because they'll come back to life. Which <laughs> doesn't mean that Shabtai, when he had the possibility of moving to Holland, didn't actually pack up his bags and go, but he came back. I mean, you know, it's not a, I don't think but there's the, an answer, but it's a great it's question. A, it's a profound question because so much of Palestinian life does take place outside of 
the land that's contested. And it's Palestine's most prominent poet is Mahmoud Dar was Mahmoud Darwish, who did not live on that well, land. Not, he did for as he a, did as a, a, young, as man. a young man, but he, but he, he put himself he in left basically. And this is a sort of unpopular thing to say, but Adina and I both feel this. The Palestinian poets who stayed, even if they stayed in Israel and became, you know, accused of being complicit because they were Israeli citizens. Their poetry feels more grounded and more powerful for being grounded in a certain way, and that we actually prefer it. At the same time, Shabtai once said to me uh, over lunch, uh, he was talking to me and another American poet, and he said, I envy you guys. We said, what do you envy? He says, I envy you your diaspora mentality, your diaspora mentality, because you guys have a universal vision of the world. We Israelis are so hung up on this one piece of land. So the question becomes, and Jews obviously have lived all over the world in different places, the question becomes, is the attachment to the land the same for Jews as it is for Palestinians? Historically, it's been quite different. It's, very, it's not something that you know, one can give a, an answer to. It's clear that they do mean different things in the cultures. But at this point, they're the, both very profound for both Yeah, people. and the notion that Palestinian art is becoming diasporic, like you're saying, in Europe, could be very interesting. You know, it could end up, as it moves on to another generation, children of Palestinians who, in fact, never lived there, who knows, that might turn into some other more universal kind of thing. We don't, you know, it's hard to say. So thank you very thank much. Thank you.